Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great, Josh. All sorts of fun things happening. How about you? Uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's yet another interesting week. Uh, I want to start this week by following up on a conversation we had last week about Alex Jones and the massive $965 million judgment that was issued against him in a Connecticut courtroom in defamation litigation brought by families of various Sandy Hook victims. Uh, now, if you didn't hear that conversation, uh, that's presumably because you're not a paying subscriber to Serious Trouble. That was an episode that was for paying subscribers only. And if you want to go back and hear that and we talk about how it came to the point that Alex Jones had that $965 million judgment against him, the various mistakes that he made in litigation that came back to bite him in the ass, where basically he was in immense pain the whole way through, didn't really participate in the process, basically thumbed his nose at the court and tried to, to slow it down by being a, a, a vexatious defendant, if you, if you can call somebody that. So anyway, he did that. And, you know, it looked in certain ways like he was frustrating the courts, but ultimately it led to this end where he had this enormous judgment entered against him. It's a judgment that's likely to stand up in form pretty similar to what it is. We've talked about often huge damage awards get reduced either by trial judges or on appeal, but we talked about some Connecticut law issues here and how it's fairly likely that this particular award uh, will stand up in form pretty similar to what it is and is likely to be essentially financially ruinous for Alex Jones. So if you want to hear that, that much more detailed conversation, you can go to Sirius trouble.show uh, for $6 a month or $60 a year. You can become a paying subscriber. You'll get every full episode directly in your inbox, uh, directly in your, in your podcast player as well. And you also can go look at the whole archive, including listen to that uh, longer conversation on Alex Jones from last week. Uh, but Ken, I want to ask a specific follow-up question, one that came in from listener Hal Duran. Uh, he says he wants to know about InfoWars, what's going to happen to InfoWars after this award. Uh, he asks, when Hulk Hogan successfully sued Gawker Media for $140 million. That entity soon filed for bankruptcy and then was broken up and sold off to new owners. Why won't the same thing happen to InfoWars? So Ken, I guess, first of all, the, the short answer to Hal's question is that that very well might happen to InfoWars, right? It could, yes. But a, a few caveats about why that might not save InfoWars. First of all, there's some classifications of damages that aren't dischargeable in bankruptcy. And any portion of this award that's punitive damages generally will not be dischargeable. Uh, and remember that the punitive component, part of that's going to be attorney's fees for the the common law claims, but there's also that special Connecticut statute, and that may wind up being a punitive award right. that would not be dischargeable. To remind people, this $965 million, that's just actual and compensatory damages. They haven't even decided on a punitive damages number yet. Right. And then here's the other thing. Bankruptcy, you can't just like, you know, on the office yell, I declare bankruptcy, and then everything's fine. you got to get through the process. And Alex Jones has had consistent difficulties successfully litigating bankruptcies in part of, because of the way he litigates. Bankruptcy judges are somewhat notorious for being even less tolerant of bad behavior than other judges. The bankruptcy judges to date have not been impressed with Alex Jones and his lawyers. And if you do not cooperate with a bankruptcy court in terms of being very upfront about all your assets and where they are and that type of thing, you will find yourself thrown out and your debt's not discharged. So it's by no means uh, easy 
for Alex Jones to get there unless he dramatically changes the way he litigates cases. But won't Alex Jones probably be actually insolvent as a result of this judgment? I mean, part of the issue was that Alex Jones had been using the bankruptcy process as a shield in litigation, trying to make it more difficult for plaintiffs to sue him to get at his assets. But now that these damages have been awarded, I mean, this this seems like what the bankruptcy process is actually for, right? When somebody owes more money than they have, you have an orderly disposition or reorganization of their assets to pay as much as possible to the creditors. It seems like if this award stands, Jones and and the entities that he owns ought to go through bankruptcy. Yes, but uh, to go through bankruptcy properly, you have to identify all the assets of the bankrupt person or entity. And when you have a situation where various corporate shields have been may, may have been used to shield assets, and maybe some assets may have been, the plaintiffs are going to argue, fraudulently moved to other people to avoid exactly this scenario, then that's going to be a source of ongoing litigation. And it's exactly that type of litigation where people are disputing, you know, whose assets are which and what belongs in this bankruptcy estate, where if you don't cooperate and you play games, you can find yourself kicked out and your debt not discharged. Mm -hmm. Ordinarily, the objective in a bankruptcy is to recover as much as you can for the creditors. You look at the assets that exist and you figure out, do we want to liquidate them? Do we want to reorganize them? What's the thing that will produce the largest return for the people who are owed more money than they could be paid? And so in a situation like this, conceivably, the things that you might do with InfoWars in order to maximize its value could be pretty unsavory to the plaintiffs in this case, right? I mean, like, I, I don't know exactly who a buyer for InfoWars is or for the assets of InfoWars, its subscriber list, that sort of thing. But I would imagine that the greatest financial value that you can get out of those assets involves using them in a somewhat similar way to the way that Alex Jones has used them. You might even want to employ Alex Jones because he is the personality that the that InfoWars' listeners and customers signed up to hear from in the first place. Now, I assume that's not what the plaintiffs would want done with these assets. Is that going to be an issue eventually before one of these courts, basically this question of if the plaintiffs want to do something with InfoWars that does not actually maximize its financial value, are they allowed to have that? Can they keep pursuing Alex Jones through other channels to pay the judgment when one of the main assets that was in involved in this, that when they've decided not to extract maximum financial value from it? What could that end up looking like? Well, that's a good point because uh, people don't flock to Alex Jones and buy his products despite the way he acts. They flock to him because of the way he acts. It's appealing to his audience. And so there is a real conflict between, I think, these people not wanting him to continue to be that way and to traumatize other families from other shootings versus what maximizes value. So yeah, th there may be some arguments uh, by Alex Jones that they're somehow preventing maximum uh, value from being achieved, and that's going to be hashed out in litigation. But again, I know that I'm sounding like a broken record on, on this. Taking advantage of that point is going to require him to cooperate with the process. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to continue to have problems. I mean, to, to make that argument, he has to, in effect, say that he is willing to run InfoWars for the benefit of the bankruptcy state and, and these plaintiffs. And I, I don't see him being able to do that. So I'm not sure it's going to go that far. A different but related issue, as you've pointed out, is what if the plaintiffs wind up owning InfoWars? Mm -hmm. It sounds bizarre, but stranger things have happened. I was reminded of uh, the time the IRS wound up owning a brothel in Nevada <laughs> for a period of time, uh, resulting in you know T-shirts like, come get screwed by the government. Um, Did the IRS continue operating the brothel? For a period of time until they sold its assets, <laughs> I believe. 
so, you know, just in, in case you think an accountant's job can never be fun. Uh, but there have been other times, and, and some people on Twitter were very helpful in helping my uh, senior brain remember some of these. Uh, Scientology, the search of China, Scientology, wound up owning something called the Cult Awareness Network that was a big critic of it. Uh, an anti-bullying site wound up owning a revenge porn site. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center wound up owning a, a Klan site. And a lot of the times, these people have taken over these channels and turned them to their own message, which usually kills them. But, uh, you know, it's a very much a moral victory for them. So would there then have to be some sort of appraisal process where if the suppose the plaintiffs come into the ownership of InfoWars and they choose to shut it down, there was never an arm's length financial transaction there that established what the value of InfoWars as an asset was. Would a court have to decide when InfoWars was awarded to the plaintiffs that was worth X number of million dollars and satisfied that portion of the judgment? Yes. Or okay. would have to decide basically they're stopped from complaining about its reduction in value if they're the ones who destroyed it. Let's talk about another defamation lawsuit. Uh, this one, uh, the defamation lawsuit that Smartmatic has brought against Fox News Channel uh, because of various Fox News Channel personalities making claims about a sweeping election conspiracy to steal the 2020 election from Joe Biden involving Smartmatic machines, which incidentally are, were only used in Los Angeles County in the United States in the 2020 election. And I don't think Los Angeles County was a uh, likely epicenter for election fraud, but uh, that would have been dispositive in the election. But in any case, uh, in that lawsuit, uh, there, there's an, an article in Semaphore, which is the new publication from Ben Smith. Uh, Max Tani uh, is writing about an issue uh, that Fox Corporation is having with its chief counsel, Viet Dinh, uh, the company's chief legal officer, effectively the second in command of the company. And basically, this story is noting that Viet Dinh lives in Los Angeles. That's where Fox Corporation is based. But he didn't become a member of the California Bar until earlier this year. He was admitted only in Washington, D.C. Uh, and this article is is alleging uh, and has uh, arguments from a, a Smartmatic attorney alleging uh, similarly that this means that Viet Dinh was not acting as a lawyer, that uh, any communications that he had uh, within Fox Corporation would not be privileged and could be discovered uh, as part of the discovery process for this lawsuit. Um, and so I'm wondering what, what you make of that claim of this sort of procedural fuck up at Fox Corporation that could be causing them trouble. It makes me angry, Josh, angry mm -hmm. and hungry and tired, because it took me like a minute and 20 seconds to determine that as a legal theory, it's not right. And 45 seconds of that was getting cream cheese off my shirt. So, <laughs> yes, sometimes there's just a dispute when an attorney, particularly an attorney for an entity, isn't licensed in a particular jurisdiction. But the weight of authority that, again, took me very little time to find seems to suggest that as long as an attorney is licensed in some jurisdiction, someplace, then the communication with them is privileged. They may not be able to, for instance, appear in court or do lawyer things like that, but it does not destroy the privilege. There's a related doctrine, in fact, where sometimes if a client has a reasonable belief that someone is a lawyer and an admitted lawyer, that um, it will be treated as privileged even if they're not, although that probably doesn't apply to mega corporations like Fox. So this seems to me to be really not a thing at all. Uh, mm. Viet Dinh was admitted in D.C. at the time, and the weight of authority seems to show that's enough to create an attorney-client privilege. The bigger problem is one that's related, which is, remember that only communications for the purpose of legal advice are covered by the privilege. And, you know, all the reporting on this points out that th this guy is, in addition to 
chief legal counsel. He's also sort of a right-hand man to higher-ups in mm. the corporation, giving business advice as well. And business advice is not covered by the attorney-client privilege. So to the extent there are communications where really it seems to be talking about business matters rather than legal matters, then those aren't going to be privileged. So in a criminal case, when you have a dispute like this, where you you know you have communications with a person who is a lawyer, but who might not always be acting in a legal capacity, uh, and you have documents you need to figure out which of them are privileged and which of them aren't privileged, that's like classic taint team territory. The taint team would get their hands on those documents and make certain evaluations about which ones were, were not privileged and could be reviewed by the investigative team and which ones are privileged. But in, the, in civil court, you don't have a taint team, right? So what do, you, what do you do about this situation where you might have a dispute over which documents are privileged? Well, first of all, usually this comes up when one side has demanded documents and the other side has said no because they're privileged. Mm -hmm. um, then you get into a situation where they demand a privilege log, which is basically a detailed list that says, this was an email from X to Y about this subject on this date, and it's privileged. And then you get into disputes about whether there was enough detail in your privilege log before finally the judge starts making rulings. And maybe the judge says, well, I'm gonna have to view these in camera, meaning I'm gonna look at the emails and make a determination. Maybe even in a sufficiently complicated case, have a special master do it, review the emails. And so, yes, basically, uh, it's always a, a contest between do we want to give them as little information as possible or do we want to make the privilege log detailed enough so that it's self-evident that this should be a privileged communication. Why don't we talk about chess? Uh, we don't usually cover a lot of chess on this podcast, but so many of you have written in and asked us to talk about this story. And by the way, I, I, Ken and I want to thank all of you for the topic suggestions and the questions that you sent in after we asked for them last week. We're definitely going to be getting to a lot of them. Uh, but Ken, let's start with this chess story. And for listeners who, for some reason, have not been following this major scandal in the world of chess, 19-year-old chess prodigy Hans Niemann has been rapidly rising through the grandmaster ranks of top-level chess. And in September, he upset reigning world chess champion Magnus Carlsen. Carlson at a tournament in St. Louis. Carlson subsequently resigned from that tournament, and when he faced Neiman again later that month in an online tournament, he resigned after just a single move in the game. There was much gossip about these two resignations from Magnus Carlson and widespread understanding in the chess world that what he was doing was tacitly accusing Hans Neiman of having cheated. Uh, and Carlson eventually got more explicit about that in a statement, saying that he believed Neiman has been cheating with regularity. Now, there are well-established ways to cheat in online chess tournaments. Computerized chess engines have advanced to a point where they can beat the most skilled human every time, and there's widespread concern about players using those engines to cheat when they're already at a computer screen. In fact, Hans Niemann has admitted that he's cheated online in the past, when he was 12 and 16 years old, but now at the ripe old age of 19, he says that he has not done that recently. The more difficult technical question is how one might cheat in a live tournament, like the one in St. Louis, from which Carlson resigned on September 4th after having been defeated by Hans Niemann. Ken, my understanding is that one of the leading theories involves an electronic butt plug, Okay, Josh, first of all, it was a Wi-Fi anal bead, and I'm pretty <laughs> sure that you knew that and that you said the wrong thing just to make Sorry. me make that clarification because my father <laughs> listens to this. So thanks for that. I mean, if it's Wi-Fi enabled, it's inherently electronic, right? Yes. 
at any rate, it's exaggeration to say it's a leading theory. What it is, is it's a crazy theory that someone on Reddit came up with that then spread around like wildfire because of its salacious and humorous nature. There is no evidence whatsoever for it. Uh, but, it, you know, the Internet being the Internet, uh, that became a leading thing that people were talking about. Notably, it is not described in Neiman's lawsuit. Uh, yes. And, you know, if if anyone had made it an even remotely serious way, you you know it would have been in there. You would not sue for defamation and fail to mention that one element of the defamation was a Wi-Fi anal bead. That would be prominent, <laughs> the accusation. Yes, as, as Ken notes there, the reason we're talking about this story here is that now there's a lawsuit angle. Hans Niemann has sued for defamation. He's suing Magnus Carlsen. He's suing Chess.com, which is the leading chess website. He's also suing a couple of chess commentators, saying that they defamed him by accusing him of cheating. And I should note, uh, regarding the Wi-Fi anal beads or butt plug or whatever, the reason this theory took hold is that while it's pretty easy to see how you cheat in chess online, it's it's significantly more complex if you want to try to cheat in person over the board, as they call it. Now, there are there are theories of how you could do it. You could have someone in the live audience making hand signals to you. If there are bathroom breaks, you can look at your phone in the bathroom. But basically, you know, the the it's a it's a much more complicated process to try to to get information to the chess player who's not at a computer screen about what the computer says that you're out to do at that point. Um, but so anyway, Hans Niemann wants a hundred million dollars. He says that he did not cheat uh, in either of these relevant games. Uh, and that uh, he's being defamed uh, by various entities that have a financial interest in ensuring that Magnus Carlsen remains the undisputed best chess player in the world. Magnus Carlsen has his own chess website that he's in the process of selling to chess.com. Um, and the idea is basically that they needed to spread this idea that Carlsen only lost because Hans Niemann cheated, not because Hans Niemann was better than him at chess. Uh, and so what do you what do you make of the nature of this complaint? We talk a lot about, you know, people have disputes all the time, including disputes about factual matters. Many of them are not very well suited to be resolved in court through the process of a defamation lawsuit. What do you make of this lawsuit as an effort to deal with the issue of whether Hans Niemann's been cheating at chess? Well, first of all, I just have to say that, you know, I do not expect the actual chess world to resemble the chess world of musicals and Netflix series, but apparently in terms of levels of drama, it does. <laughs> yeah. uh, this lawsuit is a mixed bag. It's professionally done by professional lawyer, so it's not nutty. However, uh, it's a real mix of plausible claims and not plausible claims. So one of the primary things it does is really act as sort of a public relations message about Neiman himself. So it really pumps him up as the greatest prodigy champion ever. And it seems to be, in part, a public relations effort in that sense. And in to that sense, it's kind of reminiscent of, you know, some of the Trump lawsuits we've seen where, uh, you know, they're basically trumpeting that he's the greatest ever as a significant part. Which is an understandable desire in this situation, right? Like if, if Hans Niemann was not cheating, he has a valid PR goal to get out there that the reason that he won is that he's great at chess and not that he was cheating. Absolutely. And again, it's very consistent with the modern era where defamation suits are filed with a substantial public relations goal uh, that may overcome the actual reasonable legal goal. But the, the problem with the lawsuit is that it mixes up things that are plausibly defamation than things that are probably not. Someone giving their subjective 
opinion, even if it's a dumb one or an arrogant one, that he must have been cheating is not defamation. It's only defamation if you imply false statements of fact. So if you've got uh, an arrogant uh, um, and famously blustery chess champion saying basically, if someone beat me, they must have been cheating, it's not at all clear that that's defamation unless they do it in a way that implies false facts that implies some sort of knowledge of some sort of factual circumstances. Yeah, let's actually let's talk about the specific statement that Magnus Carlsen ultimately made when he became clearer about what the accusations were that he was making against Hans Niemann. Uh, He said in late September, I believe Niemann has cheated more and more recently than he's publicly admitted. His over-the-board progress has been unusual. And throughout our game in the Sinkfield Cup, I had the impression that he wasn't tense or even fully concentrating on the game in critical positions while outplaying me as black in a way I think only a handful of players can do. So that's basically, he's saying he must have cheated because I'm so good at chess and there's no way he would have won this game, especially when he didn't even seem to be working very hard. And so that's, this is a statement of opinion. Can you go out and say, you know, I, you know, I think you murdered JFK and that's a statement of opinion because it's not you murdered JFK. It's my opinion is you murdered JFK. Cause I understand that the, he lays out a number of facts that are the reason why he has this opinion that Neiman cheated. But isn't that still a factual assertion at the end about Neiman having cheated? Well, if you lay out the factual basis for your opinion, even if it's crazy, even if it's stupid, then it's a statement of opinion if the, if the facts aren't untrue. So if you say, you know what, I think your dad killed JFK because you contested me for the Republican nomination in Iowa, <laughs> then that is completely lunatic, but uh, it's a statement of opinion uh, because you're laying out the factual premise. So in the, in the one you just quoted, Neiman could say, actually, I was very tense during that match, or no, I didn't admit that my board progress has been unusual. He could he could attack the factual under and call it defamation based on that. But if someone says, I think you cheated because I am the greatest and I didn't perceive that you were stressed, then that's embarrassing, but it's not defamation. Prior to Carlson making that specific statement, Magnus Carlson had been sort of cryptic in public. Uh, He resigned from this tournament, and that was interpreted by a lot of people as an accusation of cheating, but he hadn't yet actually accused Hans Niemann of cheating. Um, He tweeted out this video of a soccer coach basically declining to accuse uh, referees of misconduct, saying, you know, I I can't comment on that. If I comment, I'm going to get in trouble. And one thing he suggests in, in this lawsuit is that that was accusing him of cheating through implication. Um, and so that that was another way that Magnus Carlsen had defamed Hans Niemann. Does that fly? Because that's, I mean, if you're really, if you're like vague tweeting like that, how clear does the implication have to be to start making an accusation of defamation? I mean, it's, this seems like all sorts of shit talk could therefore become defamatory. Sure. And, and bear in mind, there has to be two levels of implication. First of all, defamation has to be a statement that people would understand as a statement of or concerning the plaintiff. Okay, so you'd have to first establish that people would understand this as an assertion that Neiman was cheating. And then on the second level, you'd also have to understand it as a provably false assertion of fact as opposed to opinion. So you'd have to get by merely saying, oh, I understand this to be suggesting that he was cheating to I understand this in this context where he's 
shit talking and being vague to be a factual statement as opposed to an opinion trash talking statement. And, and that's pretty hard. But there can be circumstances where you can pull that off. Like, you know, um, Josh, if you say, well, you know, I just reviewed a list of uh, local convicted child molesters, Ken, and I guess I think we're going to have to get another partner for this show. <laughs> um, the implication there is clear and it's factual. And so that could be. But a situation like this, it's not sufficiently clear, I think, that it's a message that I'm making a fact basis assertion as opposed to an opinion-based assertion. Akiva Cohen, who's a, a litigator who is uh, active on Twitter, did a, a very long and very useful thread breaking down the complaint that Hans Niemann has filed here. And one thing he talks about is sort of the, what he sees as the failure of this complaint to strike an appropriate balance on talking about what a brilliant genius Hans Niemann is. There's a factual element here where if you're arguing that Hans Niemann wasn't cheating, you need to say something about Hans Niemann is really, really, really great at chess in order to make the argument that you're making in the case. But if you go on and on about it, and particularly in a way where you're sort of bragging about how Magnus Carlsen was was so upset because he was having to see that he was not better at chess than Hans Niemann and blah, 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 you end up sort of starting to sound like an asshole. And that he thinks basically that they, they did too much of that. It looks to him like it's something that was done at the behest of the client rather than something that was actually serving the client's legal interest. Yeah, I mean, it, it does go on quite a bit about how wonderful he was. But I don't know how much that may just be satisfying our expectations. Our cultural expectations are that chess champions are going to have a certain level of hubris. And maybe it's just playing into that. If he if he's not a self-centered jerk, what kind of champion can he actually be? <laughs> uh, but also, as you pointed out, it has to make it plausible that obviously I won because of the merits and my abilities and, and not for these reasons. He's trying to, in effect, argue that it was unreasonable for these accusations to be made, even though that's not the standard at all. Can we talk for a moment about venue? You're enjoying this, aren't you? I am enjoying this. Yes, we can talk about this. <laughs> this lawsuit was filed in federal court in the Eastern District of Missouri. Why? That's not clear. Uh, they don't really articulate very well what their theory is on why that's a venue. Now, when you've got stuff that's being said and being received by consumers of media all over the world, then you can make arguments about a lot of different jurisdictions. But it's kind of hard to pick one just out of the ether where nobody lives and nothing happened and say it's about that one. Practically speaking, strategically speaking, why? I think that uh, Akiva Cohen's right on this, that uh, Neiman himself lives in Connecticut, but Connecticut has a very strong anti-slap statute. So he's probably trying to come up with someplace that doesn't have a good anti-slap statute statute or one that won't apply in federal court. He also just may think that the people are going to be more receptive in this particular jurisdiction. I mean, I, I should note one of the initial precipitating events in this saga, the live game where Hans Niemann defeated Magnus Carlsen and where Magnus Carlsen didn't make public statements but took some of his initial moves uh, that people interpreted as, as tacit accusations of Hans Niemann, th those occurred in the Eastern District of Missouri. This tournament was in St. Louis. Uh, one of the issues that Cohen raises is that you know there's a whole bunch of other defendants besides Magnus Carlsen who were not particularly doing anything in Missouri. The second tournament from which Carlsen uh, resigned was an online tournament. There's no apparent tie to Missouri there. And then we have no reason to believe that he made any of the subsequent statements in Missouri. So there was this. And so one of the things Cohen says is basically, you know, that you might be able to sue Magnus Carlson 
in the Eastern District of Missouri because of the the specific events that he participated in that happened there, but that he thinks it's likely the other defendants would be able to get this suit dismissed just on, on venue grounds, that it's in the wrong court, that they can't be dragged to Eastern Missouri to litigate this. Well, venue or personal jurisdiction. So there's a question whether the court has authority over you, personal jurisdiction. And if you didn't participate in anything directed to that jurisdiction uh, and didn't do anything there, then that becomes more difficult. Uh, And that's related to venue, but it's not quite the same thing. I think you're right that there's a plausible argument for one of the defendants, although I think it's definitely kind of random to make it there as opposed to all the other places uh, you could have made it. Uh, But yeah, for most of the defendants, I think it's tough holding them to answer in Missouri when they did nothing in Missouri or directed to Missouri or anything like that. And so you you note that a a reason why Neiman might want to be in Missouri is the more favorable legal regime there, that the anti-slap law, the law that is designed to essentially penalize plaintiffs for bringing defamation lawsuits that are really designed to stop people from expressing opinions they don't like rather than to litigate over damage caused by false statements made. Uh, that The law in Missouri is weak. It only applies to statements made at public hearings, so it doesn't provide any protection here for Magnus Carlson or any of the other defendants. And so when we, we talk a lot about anti-slap laws, uh, and so that's, that stands for strategic lawsuit against public participation. And so usually that's in the context of matters like political arguments or accusations of criminal activity. But what is public participation within the scope of those laws? If the purpose is to protect public discourse or the the, the, the public's ability to participate in discussions of important matters, that extends to things like who's cheating in chess tournaments? It can. It depends on the statute. Uh, so anti-slap statutes, as you suggest, vary greatly state to state. Some of them suck because they're really narrow and only apply like to statements you make before the legislature or something like that. But many of them are very broad, California, Texas, Florida, and apply to any statement on a matter of public interest in a public forum. And absolutely, uh, lots of people are interested in chess, not as many as in, say, Russia, but lots of people are interested. (laughs) And a um, prominent young phenom in chess and the accusation of whether he was cheating in a major tournament is absolutely a matter of public interest. Generally, in those states with the broader laws, anytime that you're talking about a celebrity, uh, a uh, entertainer, a sports star, someone like that, doing something in their wheelhouse, it's probably going to be a matter of public interest for purposes of the anti-slap statute. So if they had accused this guy uh, falsely of having a DUI, then maybe that's not a matter of public interest because it's not related to his wheelhouse and he's not really that famous. But when you're talking about a chess star cheating in chess, that's absolutely public interest. Finally this week, can we talk about Jacob Wool? Oh, I hope we can. (laughs) When we were doing all the president's lawyers together for a number of years, we would talk about Jacob Wohl, the – what was the term we always used for Jacob Wohl? The – we always had the same descriptor for him. Is the inept – the inept trickster or something or the the – the, sort of the, the, the bumbling, the, uh, the incompetent bumbling rat, fucker. rat fucker it might have been. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't think it was because I think we were on the air, but I think we can call him the incompetent rat fucker now, now that we're just yes. on, on Substack. So incompetent rat fucker Jacob Wool, 
um, who uh, famous for things including when they uh, they accused Elizabeth Warren of having an affair with a much younger man, and they had this giant poster that said Elizabeth Warren Cougar on it, um, yes. and things of that nature. Completely unsubstantiated claims, usually for some reason made in the driveway of Jack Berkman's home in Ar- in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, so one of the things that Jacob Wall and his his older colleague, Jack Berkman, who's apparently some sort of lobbyist, that they did is they had various robocalls placed into heavily African-American precincts in states, including Ohio and Michigan, uh, that were an attempt to suppress the vote in 2020, essentially making false claims about legal liability that one might face if one tried to vote. And they have faced criminal charges in a number of states. Now, Ken, we were always looking for the big boy federal felony that Jacob Wool might commit and be charged with. And he's, you know, he's already been charged with securities fraud in the state of California. Now he is pleading guilty. He and Jack Berkman are pleading guilty to a felony. But again, it's a state felony. It hasn't quite met the specification that you set on our previous show. Now, I, I expressed many times over the years my confidence that sooner or later Jacob Wall would commit and be charged with a big boy federal felony. Uh, but, you know, uh, Josh, this is getting closer, but it's not close enough. I, we have standards uh, in this business, you know, uh, there are rules. And this is, sure enough, uh, a state felony for uh, robocalls. And in addition to pleading guilty to that, uh, he's still facing a different robocall felony in Michigan and the New York Attorney General civil suit uh, in New York and an FCC proposed fine of $5 million and the securities-related state-charged felony in California. But so far, no federal charges. But you know what? I still believe in him. This is a hero's journey, Josh, and it doesn't necessarily (laughs) go smoothly. He has to go through some things before he gets to the end, but I I still think he can do it. He's almost exceeding the uh, Michael Avenatti standard for, for geographical distribution of crimes that one is charged with. Um, he, is, he is bicoastal in his legal difficulties, just like uh, Michael Avenatti. That's pretty impressive. Yes. Being bicoastal is a sign of being a member of the Jet Set. Yes, he's bicoastal, and his pronoun is defendant. So, <laughs> so th- this plea, uh, they have to pay $2,500 fines. You say it's unlikely that they're going to go to jail, even though they pleaded guilty to a felony here in Ohio? Uh, that's my understanding from Ohio criminal practitioners. I don't practice there myself, but the consensus seemed to be that for a first offensive conviction, not the first offense being charged with, of this nature with an early guilty plea, that it was not likely to be a custodial sentence. But that means since they're also charged in Michigan, once they, you know, if that reaches either a conviction or a guilty plea, that will no longer be a first offense for them, right? True. Uh, So in Michigan, uh, he moved to dismiss the charges on First Amendment and other theories. Uh, He lost. He appealed. He lost. Now it's I believe it's going up to the Michigan Supreme Court where he will lose again. Uh, And then likely you'll see him pleading there, too, just because it's very hard to defend it in that state once he's basically admitted the intent elements in the other state. And yes, it'll no longer be a first offense, but they'll probably sort of bundle it into the same type of package. This type of offense often comes without custodial time. And they figure just nailing someone 
uh, with a felony uh, is enough to derail their life, which for a lesser young man, it might, Josh. But <laughs> I believe it just helps uh, young Jacob Wall to to assemble more parts of himself, to become the, the, the sort of the criminal Voltron that he's destined to be uh, carrying along with him all these different components of criminal convictions. Well, I mean, this is sort of, in a way, reminds me of some of the conversations that we've had about Alex Jones, uh, where, you know, if you imagine a political operative, a more normal political operative, a felony conviction would be a real problem for them professionally. Uh, there would be reputational risk for the clients or associations or, or candidates or whoever might hire them. It, it would interfere with their ability to do business. They would really care about maintaining the reputation in that area, and they would be motivated to avoid activities that cause them to be to, to have a felony conviction. These guys are already so disreputable. It's not obvious to me that this interferes, this will interfere with their business activities such as they are in the future. If you were already the sort of person who was willing to hire Jack Berkman and Jacob Wohl, I don't know that the fact that they, you know, they're convicted felons in at least one state is likely to change that. I don't think so either. I mean, you, you you know what you're getting if you hire them. You're getting spectacle. Uh, you're getting clickbait <laughs> and things that people love to watch because it's a, a dumpster fire. So um, I think that the people who are interested in that sort of spectacle will continue to bring them on for it and that we're very much in a political era where that type of spectacle sells and that some people at least are willing to do it to, to, to get that attention. And uh, by the way, I just wanted to say back to their thing about Elizabeth Warren, my favorite mm -hmm. part of that whole story was where Elizabeth Warren reacted with a – she actually went to a college, the the um, mascot of which was the Cougar. Was the Cougars. She, she put a Go Cougars <laughs> thing on Twitter, which I thought was sort of a boss way to handle the situation. Uh, that's enough serious trouble for this week. Uh, tell us what you think of this episode. Send us any questions you have about what we've discussed here or any other serious trouble that interests you. You can reach us by email. Ken, I've tortured you enough this week. The, the email address I will tell everyone is ricohotline at serioustrouble.show. That's R-I-C-O hotline. Uh, and you can join the conversation about this episode and more at serioustrouble.show. Jump in the comments section. Always lots of interesting conversations uh, that can end up informing the conversations that we have on future episodes. And again, we will be working through many of those questions and topic suggestions that you've sent along uh, in the last week uh, over the months to come. I'm Ken White. And I'm Josh Barrow. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. This is Serious Trouble. More headed your way soon. <laughs>